Locked up for 15 months, the Canada-U.S. border will remain closed to non-essential travel for at least another 30 days. What will it take to see traffic crossing over to both sides? Hello and welcome to Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location of practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. Vaccines are being distributed. Cases are coming down as are deaths and hospitalizations. The border has been closed since March 2020 and has a devastating effect on business in particular travel and tourism. Cross-border towns in Canada and the U.S. US have felt it dramatically with much fewer customers. Prime Minister Trudeau is calling for 75% of Canadians to be vaccinated with their first shot, which Canada just passed this weekend. 20% of Canadians now have their second shot. Now, U.S. politicians are getting antsy about the reopening and have been putting a bit of pressure on the president. Now, apparently, Prime Minister Trudeau and President Biden spoke briefly about it last week at the G7 meetings. The U.S. has also declared its border closed for another 30 days. Now, our unpublished.vote question asks you, do you support the reopening of the Canada-U.S. border to non-essential travel? Overwhelmingly, our viewers and listeners say yes, 88.2%, 11.7 said 9, and virtually nobody was unsure on their decision. However you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or on our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you that you can cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote and then email your MP to tell them why. Now, joining us to discuss the border, Mary Scott Scotty Greenwood is the CEO of the Canadian American Business Council. Mark Agnew is the Vice President of Policy and International at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Beth Potter is the President and CEO of the Tourism and Industry Association of Canada. And Marvin Ryder is a professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. And I thank you all for joining us on, on this important uh, important issue. Now, Mark, uh, first off, the border closed for another month. That was announced last week. Now, the chamber was hoping for an, op- uh, an opening. Is there any reason in your eyes the border can't be reopened even to the fully vaccinated? Um, well, no is the short answer. The government had an expert panel that it brought together. And um, I should say the expert panel didn't bring together, you know, people like me, it brought together the medical professionals who actually do know a thing or two about the science. And they came and they said that for fully vaccinated uh, travelers, whether you're, you know, Canadian, Canadian resident or, or, or not, whether you're American, uh, you should be allowed to enter the country and not be subject to the 14 day uh, quarantine period. And certainly, um, you know, we live in a period where people say we should look to the experts. And uh, that is who we're looking to is to our advice uh, on this. Um, I, I would just say the other piece of it too, is, in addition to the science is also the messaging. Um, there's still this message around non-essential travel here in Canada. We see other countries around the world that are starting to open up. They've articulated multi-step plans. We don't have a multi-step plan. We have a plan that'll take us to July 5th and what comes after, who, who knows? Um, and I think the messaging is really important to get right because people are fatigued from seeing the border closures. Um, you know, I took note as probably one of the few people in the world who read through to the end of the G7 communique. And in that last sentence, they actually endorse um, the Tokyo Olympics going ahead. And I think that does send mixed signals to people to say that the Olympics is okay to go ahead, our leaders endorse it, but we're still advising against all non-essential travel. Well, you know, to follow up on that just for a second, Mark, take a look at the Stanley Cup playoffs. And, you know, the NHL seems to have no problem with getting people across the border. But if anybody else wants to do it, well, that's uh, that's a different situation, right? Well, I could be accused of being biased since my team has been knocked out uh, of the playoffs already. But certainly, you know, people do look at these things and they want to know what the rules are and they want to see them applied consistently. Uh, Beth, a TX reaction to Friday's announcement. I'm guessing it was disappointment. 
Very much so. Um, you know, we had been hoping to hear more of a plan. Um, we had hoping to hear, um, you know, the different kinds of travelers addressed. So not only fully vaccinated, but you know, partially and, and unvaccinated. And and frankly, you know, a vaccinated person is a vaccinated person. It doesn't matter what their nationality is. Um, and so why limit fully vaccinated traveling, uh, you know, crossing of the border to, to Canadians only? It just doesn't seem right. Scotty, U.S. politicians are growing louder in their criticism of the border closure. What does this signal to you? Well, the divergence is striking, Ed, because you know, when we talk about border closures, we're actually talking about the land border. And it's important to understand that the U.S. air border hasn't been closed to Canadians at all. Uh, and there, But there isn't reciprocity here. There's an asymmetry in the way the U.S. and Canada are approaching the border. And that, to me, is troubling because um, it's important uh, for the good of our economic space and our cultural space and our, our society that we approach these things together. And it's pretty clear that Canada and the United States uh, have made the decision to go our separate ways when it comes to border policy. And, you know, one of the things that is um, troubling is the definition of what's essential travel versus non-essential. So right at the beginning of the public health crisis over a year ago, um, the governments did a very good job at collaborating and saying, look, we've got to keep those grocery stores shelves stocked and we've got to keep medicines coming. We've got to keep the health sector going. And that made complete sense. Since then, though, the definition of what's essential is unclear. And if you're in the travel industry, uh, you have a different idea of what's essential because your business is essential to you. It's your livelihood. And yet, uh, you're, you know, people aren't allowed to travel. If you're in the hockey business, then the Stanley Cup playoffs are essential. But so, so you know, it's important. I agree completely with what Beth said, which is a vaccinated person is a vaccinated person. And as Mark said, the experts have told us uh, that if you're fully vaccinated, you should be able to travel. So why the difference between Canadians and Americans? I don't understand it. Uh, Marvin, I, I've heard uh, a couple of times already about bad messaging by the federal government, and, and uh, Scotty just touched on it now. You know, the land border is closed, but the air border was never really closed, although well, we can argue about whether it should have been or not. Uh, is How much is this mixed messaging creating a problem for Canadians? Well, let me try it this way. I think it was easier to close things than it is to reopen things, especially if you're looking at some form of staged reopening. Um, and so your mixed messaging, I think, is going to be in spades on anything. We're talking today about travel, but even on, you know, why is it that a store can be open and yet I can't get my hair cut? Uh, why is that the case? So I think you're going to see a lot of that. Now, I'm going to tell you something up front. I actually flew to the United States in October. Was it essential? Well, I was going to visit a doctor. So in my mind, it was essential, but it wasn't life-threatening. I thought it was interesting that nobody asked me at any time what was uh, what was the purpose of my trip. No one had to judge this. But if if you do have these criteria, remember somebody at an airport or somebody at a land crossing is going to have to patrol this. Uh, here's a simple example. How do I prove to you that I have been vaccinated? Is it just that I say that to you or do I show you pieces of paper? Uh, I have two pieces of paper. I'm now fully vaccinated from the Ontario government but they're easily photocopiable. And using today's technology, you could scan them in, take out Marvin Ryder, put in at hand, and now you would have credentials even if you aren't vaccinated. 
it, it, it starts to get a little tricky in the implementation. So I think we're talking philosophically. I agree with it. I think we should have the borders open. But how do you actually patrol this right at that touch point? I think that's the complication at the moment. But we've uh, had a year to think about it, right? Yeah, that's more true. Than a, more than a year, right? This is not, we, we know how to manage the border together. We know how to manage risk. Um, and, and the governments just haven't been putting in place um, a way to certify public safety going back and forth across. Uh, they're not ready for it yet. And that's, that's really unacceptable. Yeah, although let me just jump in and say that I think an interesting question on a global basis, is each country going to have its own standard? Is there going to be a global standard? The European Union apparently has done some cooperation on something. You put it on your cell phone, there's a QR code, and whether you're Dutch or you're French or you're Italian, you prove your vaccination. Canada and the United States, absolutely, Scotty, we've had 15 months to sort this out. They haven't done a thing. Justin Trudeau is talking about uploading my scanned pieces of paper into an app. But, you know, suppose you're a customs official in, uh, in Washington state and you look at my phone, how do you know that's even valid? I'm surprised we haven't got something more tangible at this point. But there and, and are things out there that are tangible. There are, you know, um, the, the, the private sector has, has come up with it. I mean, there's an app called Can Immunize that can link to your public health record. Um, I've, I've tested it. I've, my, I've got my account on there and it links to my Toronto public health record. It shows I've got my, both my vaccines. Um, and so there are already things in place. Um, I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel here. Uh, Mark, uh, vaccine passports, you know, we've talked about a lot about this or, or obviously certification paperwork, whatever. Uh, do you think this is going to become the only way you're going to be able to travel? Um, I, I don't. I mean, I don't know. Um, I would say I, I hope not over the long term. I mean, our view on uh, vaccination status is that, yes, I think in the short term, it's a way to facilitate travel. Um, but over the long term, even once we have reached herd immunity, and hopefully, you know, we're not talking about this day in, day out, there will be people for, you know, medical reasons, religious reasons, or you know, whatever the case may be, who aren't going to be vaccinated. And so certainly having a vaccine passport should not be a prerequisite to being travel, to being allowed to travel. Again, it might be there to help facilitate. But I think if you started saying, if you're not vaccinated, you can't get on a plane, that you're going to open a whole other, you know, can of worms that nobody particularly wants to uh, open. Mm -hmm. Uh, Beth, what, what other countries, uh, what other countries uh, are, are opening up that maybe Canada should look to for for a pop, whether it's phased and opening or, or or whatever? Well, um, like Mar Marvin said, the EU has um, has a plan and a process in place. The UK has one as well. Um, the United States, they just opened. You know, they didn't um, put a, a double vaccination uh, clause in place at all. They didn't. They just opened. Um, and so, you know, somebody had asked me the other day, oh, well, what about if we did a, a bubble with, you know, Canada and the United States? I said, well, the bubble wouldn't wouldn't work because the United States is just open. You know, anybody can fly in. And in fact, a lot of people are flying to the United States from other countries in order to get their vaccine. Um, because they can't get them in their home country. Uh, you've got, you know, vaccine clinics in Times Square with volunteers out talking to tourists saying, hey, do you need your vaccine? Come on in and get it. So I, I you know, there, there, are, there are plans and, uh, out there uh, that we need to uh, line up with. 
Uh, we've been saying that from the get-go, that whatever the system looks like, it needs to be seamless because travel is a global activity. You know, Ed, if I could just piggyback sure. on something uh, on this, the, what President Biden has said is he has focused on, the U.S. administration has focused on getting as many Americans vaccinated as possible. So if your entire population hopefully gets vaccinated, then if somebody travels and they're not vaccinated, it's not a risk to you. So, so the emphasis has been on getting people vaccinated in the U.S. And I, I think that's a, and, and President Biden said he doesn't want to have a vaccine passport. So the U.S. is more open um, to global travel and the U.S. economy is more open to global commerce. I think the rub will be when Americans want to travel abroad. Um, other countries, at, rightfully so, can ask for an official certification of your health. Uh, just like governments have to certify your nationality, right? We know how to do this. There are technology answers to doing this. So I don't think the U.S. will be able to just say, like, we don't believe in vaccine passports. The U.S. can say that in terms of welcoming people. But when Americans want to start traveling, other countries will say, okay, demonstrate to us that you're vaccinated. And that's where we're going to have to um, get it right. It makes so much sense to get it right with Canada. I mean, if we can't, if we can't do this in the U.S. and Canada, um, I worry about our ability for the for the world to um, come back to some semblance of normalcy. Canada and the United States really should lead the way on this. And at the moment, honestly, we're going in different directions. Yeah, it seems that we are going in, in different directions. And, you know, we, we do have hot spots uh, in, in some places, although they are coming down. And, uh, and I'm wondering, uh, Mark, would it be a decent idea to possibly have some regional openings or do you have to fully open the, the entire border? Um, well, I understand that there could be some attractiveness to regional openings. I think just in practical terms, um, you would need to treat the border as, as a whole. And I think ideally, actually, you would treat land, air, marine and rail crossings similar across all modes. One of the big things that's become complicated is what, you know, Marvin and, and Scotty mentioned about you can fly into the U.S. right now for you know whatever the reason. It doesn't have to be uh, deemed to be essential. So keeping the rules as simple as possible is is quite critical. And I think if you start having regional bubbles, um, you know, having people who might drive uh, up from, you know, Buffalo to Cornwall to do a crossing, um, you know, it's not out of the question. And so I think if there was any intent, I think for practical reasons, it perhaps wouldn't work as well as it might sound uh, good in theory. You know, we are hearing an awful lot more about the, the Delta variant uh, as, uh, you know, vaccine or no vaccine, we still have uh, an issue to deal with. It's more transmissible to those with, with only one shot. And, and what concern do you have about that, Marvin? Uh, let me give you a couple of quick things on this. Uh, start go back to your vaccine passport. Let's say we're talking internationally. You know, Canada has approved four vaccines for use, but there are other vaccines in other countries. In Russia, for instance, they use something called the Sputnik V, and they shipped a lot of that to Mexico. So if I'm a Mexican coming to Canada, I'm going to show you I've had the Sputnik V. China has its own vaccine, and there are a couple others out there. So again, as we're trying to open the borders, we're saying, are you fully vaccinated? But at the moment, we're saying only one of these four, and yet there's probably about eight of them out there. How is that going to work? Vice versa, I go to Russia, or I want to go to Russia. Uh, I haven't had Sputnik B. Are they going to recognize AstraZeneca or Pfizer as equivalent? I think the other thing on, on the vaccine passport that's got people a little worried is not, is not the use of the passport for travel. As was said earlier, you know, if I wanted to go to a nation that has a problem with malaria, I might have to prove that I've taken various steps to prevent that. 
But uh, what else might people do? Um, I teach at a university. Uh, my university has not said anything about vaccinations as a requirement to live in residence. But there are other big universities in Canada that are saying we need proof that you have been vaccinated. In other words, I want to see your vaccine passport to live in residence or to come to school. Um, Bruce Springsteen is having a concert and he needs proof of your vaccination to go to his concert. And there were some Canadians who wanted to go and they initially Springsteen said he wouldn't accept, would not accept AstraZeneca vaccinations. He since changed his mind and said that would be okay. But now suddenly people are using passports in ways they were never intended. And then just to go back to what was said earlier, I think these passports have a time limit to them, assuming we can kind of wrestle COVID to the ground. So for the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, it might be important. But then hopefully we get the world in a position where much before I never asked you to show me proof of polio vaccinations or whooping cough vaccinations or measles vaccinations. We just kind of assumed that you were OK on that level or that our citizens had enough protection. And finally, just on the regional thing, as was said, it's a lovely idea in principle, but we've seen people work their way around. You remember the famous story of the fellow in, in Vancouver who and he and his wife flew to the Northwest Territories to get a vaccine earlier, even though they weren't a resident in that area. People have such mobility today. Any regional opening, you're going to have lots of people not from that region trying to take advantage of it. Uh, you know, Beth, quarantine hotels, they've been very controversial, we'll say. Uh, I wonder, originally, was it to dissuade people who were ignoring the restrictions? Maybe they would see that it was going to cost them quite a bit to actually ignore the restrictions and go on their little trip? Or uh, do, do you think it was it was more to make the, make the, uh, the landing place uh, safer? Well, the government never really uh, confirmed why they put the hotel quarantines in place. But what the expert advisory panel did acknowledge is that it probably kept some people a little more honest in, the, in, in making sure that they did quarantine. So the compliance with quarantine, it probably helped with that. Um, but, you know, it, it's not needed now. Um, and so it's not needed if you are doubly vaccinated and you're testing negative. Um, and so this is the, this is, it's time for those to go away. Um, and it's, it's uh, been a controversial issue because hotels are seen as the bad guys, right? I mean, uh, people get upset with the system and they're not kind of placing the blame in the right place. Um, the hotels, are, this is not something that the hotel community came up with. Uh, this is something that they were asked to do um, by government themselves. Uh, now, just to, to follow up, CERB uh, and, and CEWS are, are going to be coming to an end fairly soon, but obviously work in the travel and tourism industry, those, those workers need support. So is that either going to cost the government more money to keep these uh, programs going to support those people? Or is that another example of maybe you know, work is a better idea, reopen the border, and they're going back to work, and they're not going to need those uh, programs. Right. So um, when the budget came out in the spring, you know, Minister Freeland very much um, 
set the set the stage for you know a return to work, a return you know to see the uh, the economy uh, you know kind of get back and uh, and start to recover. And so that's why she announced that the subsidy programs for wage and rent would start to decline starting on July fourth. Well. Some industries have been able to recover and rehire, and, and that's fantastic, but our industry has not. So right now, we're approaching a cliff on July 4th that um, there are a lot of businesses that are going to see a significant decline in the subsidy support that they've been getting, uh, and yet still no tourists crossing the border. So it is going to be... Um, it could be a really bleak next few months as we watch businesses close their doors for good because they just haven't got the wherewithal. They've taken on as much debt as they can. They've spent you know, all of their reserves or their savings and they just can't do it anymore. And that what goes along with that is anybody who is using the wage subsidy, you're gonna start to see the unemployment numbers in our sector go up again. Um, and we're already much higher than um, the national average. Uh, so it's it's just not painting a really good picture. We've been um, in conversation with finance and with small business and with tourism and economic development and, and the PMO, and um, we're just not seeing any willingness at this point uh, to acknowledge that this is a sector that's harder hit than anybody else um, and is going to need some support longer than anybody else. I wonder what the full, uh, the, you know, the long-term impact on the travel tourism industry is because, you know, uh, whether these folks are, are going to be getting funding from the government or not, if the border's not open and they're not back to work, at some point, somebody's going to say, you know what, I think the travel and tourism industry isn't for me. I'm going to go find something else. And we're just finding that with healthcare workers right now who have been just burned right out. What's the long-term impact on the travel tourism industry if they can't find the people to do the work? Well, we were already facing a labor shortage prior to the pandemic, and um, it's just been exasperated by by the pandemic. And it's not it's 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 jobs and and positions at all levels, um, and people are making that decision. You know, if you get laid off 15 months ago, you still have to put food on the table and a roof over your head. So they uh, we've lost already a lot of our uh, trained staff to other industries because. Other industries were working and we weren't. Ed, if I could just sure. jump in on this as well, and it, it, it's even more than that. Um, you know, here in the United States, um, our TV airwaves, at least here in the Washington, D.C. area, are filled with tourism ads, come visit Alaska. You know, the world is reopening, come see Montana. And you see the tourism industry, uh, which is a vital industry, um, you, you know, saying to Americans who have this pent up interest because we've been cooped up for all this time, travel. So you see the industry saying, come see us. Now it, in Alaska, as an example, um, you know, the cruise, there are a lot of cruises um, that people like to take and the cruise industry um, has actually gotten an exemption to a, to a really old rule in the US that's called the Jones Act. The Jones Act said, if you're a foreign flag vessel, um, you must have a foreign port of call if you're traveling from a point in the US to, a, to another point in the US. In other words, if, you're in the, if you wanna take a cruise and you're starting in California and you're ending up in Alaska and that's gonna be your destination. I could use an East Coast example too or a New England example and Halifax, but let's say you're starting in California going to Alaska. 
previously, you had to stop in Vancouver. Now, by the way, Vancouver is a spectacular place to go. It's British Columbia is one of my favorite places in the world. I would love to be there this summer. I'd love to be in Kitimat or in Tofino. I'm not allowed to go and bring my family, even though we're fully vaccinated. But the Jones Act used to require uh, ships to sail to Vancouver if they wanted to go to Alaska. You know what? The U.S. Congress just waived that requirement. And is that the beginning of a slippery slope where you no longer have to have a Canadian destination? So if you are headed to Canada, great. But if you were just headed to Alaska or somewhere in New England and you no longer are required by law to have a foreign port of call, that's going to have a direct impact on uh, the Canadian ports and all of those communities. I mean, and just in disclosure, and I work with the Canadian Port Authority, so I have some insights into this, um, but it's something that I worry about because it's a temporary uh, situation, but for competitive reasons, could you see the Jones Act being completely repealed? You could, and that would be extremely really? problematic in Canada. Yeah, yeah Mark, I've, I've, uh, I've, I've, go ahead. No, I was just saying, I've, I've got a meeting right after this with our National Cruise Committee, and it's a huge point of concern. Um, it, in fact, could wipe out um, a huge portion of business for uh, both the East Coast and the West Coast. Um, but there are, there are five cruising um, regions in Canada. Um, and uh, it, so this isn't just a BC or an Atlantic provinces issue. This this impacts a lot more than that. Yeah, the entire St. Lawrence Seaway, Quebec, you know, ports in Quebec and Montreal, yeah. um, ports the, the in Great Lakes. the Great Lakes in Ontario. It's, it's, a, it's one of those sleeper issues, Ed, that I don't think people are focused on. And I really don't want to be the government official that says to somebody in that industry, you're not essential. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Hey, it's been interesting trying to figure out who is essential and who isn't with uh, the last 15 months. But Mark, I'm kind of curious. Uh, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce has been very vocal in its, uh, uh, I guess, we won't call it criticism, but call for a, an opening of the of the border. Um, how would you characterize the talks between the Chamber and, and, and the Canadian government? Um, I mean, it certainly has been uh, ongoing. Uh, we talked to the folks that are at the political level. We talk to folks that are, um, you know, the departmental uh, civil servants. Um, but I have to admit, you know, we, we don't we don't have the plan. There is uh, if there is one, we've yet to see it. And as much as today was a incremental uh, step forward, there's still a long way to go. And knowing what's going to happen after July 5th at 1159, I, I don't know. I don't think Scotty knows. I don't think Marvin knows. I don't think Beth knows. No, no, no one's told us yet. And so really what we're pressing on is thinking more than just, you know, the one step ahead. What we actually will frequently point the government towards is what the UK did, not sort of saying duplicate the plan, but duplicate the fact that they have a plan. There's clear markers, you know, how different travel criteria are being applied into what uh, what countries. And that is sort of a, a, an approach, at least, that we should look to emulate with that level of clarity. And I should say, too, that the UK is not sort of, you know, uh, a carte blanche, you know, open it up, you know, uh, without any conditions, there's a very clear emergency break in there. They've articulated that if things go off the rails, you know, we're going to not hesitate to pull back. And so just to be clear, industry is not asking for us just to, you know, pull the curtain back and not have any safe safety rails there. We're fully in yeah. favor of that because this has to be done sustainably and in a smart way. You, you said uh, the incremental announcement today. Are you talking about fully vaccinated being able to cross the border? 
That's correct. And so this builds on what was already announced about a week and a half ago, but now there's a, you know, all the full details there so we know how it applies. But even in you know, the announcement today, for example, children under the age of 12, because they're not eligible to be vaccinated, they will have to still quarantine at home for 14 days. And so if you're a parent um, with young children, you can't leave them at home if they're under 12 uh, by themselves. So it kind of becomes a bit of a de facto quarantine for the, the parents too that do uh, decide to, do, to travel with their kids abroad. Right. Well, it's uh, it's a very interesting subject, and I know we've tackled this one a few times, and hopefully things will start moving shortly. I want to thank our guest today on Unpublished TV, Mary Scott Scotty Greenwoods, the CEO of the Canadian American Business Council. Mark Agnew is the Vice President of Policy and International of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Beth Potter is the President and CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of Canada, and Marvin Ryder, Professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. And I want to thank you for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.